HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Alberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 or 1, something like that. Hey, Stas, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing all right. Joined, as usual, with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and the guys in the engineering booth. How are you guys doing over there? Just, just, Jack. just Jack today. Just Jack? Old school. Old school. You know, you know, no offense to anyone else, but, you know. I like Just Jack. Feels good to have the, oh. the Just Jack. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Jack. Jack's the man. Jack Inslee, a.k.a. The man. You got anything uh, good going on the Heritage Radio Networks that we need to know about? New website launch. Yeah? When is that going to happen? It's up. It's, it, when did it go up? Uh, we had a little soft launch happen yeah. last week, and it's up now. Uh, we also have our own kind of like storefront in the iTunes store now. So you can see Heritage Radio Network has its own kind of channel. And right now on the front page, they're featuring our Alice Waters Evolutionaries. Kind of Alice's life story is on the front page of the iTunes podcast store. Oh, nice. Now, so that's fun. Let me ask you a question. Do we sell anything other than us? Nope. Oh, all right. That's why you should donate. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, all right, well, that's good news. I'm going to go check that out. And you, Did you already tell these guys? Like a like, like, little blurb on what they're going to get out of the new website, what it's going to do that they couldn't get before from the Heritage Radio the Network. The new website features a, a, an entire kind of new department of in-house produced content. So we've got six sort of categories, pleasure, health, news, opinion, business, science, and technology, and we're both from the programs weekly and then just from scratch in the office putting together in-house content so kind of transitioning to more news more reporting um stuff like that it's really good stuff nice uh all right then well uh let's take some questions call in your questions to 718-497-2128 that's 718-497-2128 and just so you guys know i can't personally check my tweets during the uh show because i'm talking during the show so if you have questions you want to tweet in if you don't want to call in tweet it to at heritage radio network is that right jack it's at Heritage underscore radio. Shows what the hell I know. Yeah. You know what? Close. How is it that I know nothing? How long did it take me, Jack, to memorize our telephone number? Yeah, so it's long. still a process. It took like a, <laughs> like a year and a half for me to memorize yeah. our telephone number. Well, whatever. 
So Devin Stone tweeted in, uh, at Cooking Issues, Trader Joe's sells most of their protein in vacuum bags, some clear, some black. Are they low temperature safe? Devin, I wasn't able to find anything uh, off the bat on the composition of the Trader Joe's uh, bags, and I dreaded, but I will do during the next week, uh, fighting my way up the corporate ladder to find a human being who knows what the hell's going on. But everyone knows what a pain in the butt it is to, to deal with corporations like that, right, Stas? Yep. But I will tell you something about Trader Joe's. Uh, I, you know, Stas, what are your feelings on Trader Joe's? They're okay. They're, well, what do you really think? I don't like their Hawaiian shirts. You don't like their Hawaiian shirts? Yeah. Well, you know, I always kind of like, I, I was fine with Trader Joe's. I had no problem with Trader Joe's uh, until I found this out. You ready for this? Are you familiar with the Bread and Life? Uh, Bread and Life is like a, they provide food for people that don't have it and they take donations. They're, they're in Brooklyn, actually. Yeah. Jack, yeah, you know Bread Good and Life. friends of the station. Yeah, good friends of the station. Well, Jack, you might be interested to know this, and I'm not telling anyone to change their buying behavior based on this, but uh, a lot of the big food purveyors uh, around, like Whole Foods and whatnot, right, they will give their, uh, like the day before their stuff is going to expire, they'll, they'll take it off the shelves and they'll give it to organizations like Bread and Life who will instantly cook with it so that they can get it out before the expiry date, right, and then they're not throwing away or wasting all this food, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Trader Joe's doesn't. Because they think it's too much of a hassle. They specifically destroy the food, throw it out in dumpsters instead of giving it uh, to Bread and Life because they think it's going to be too much of a hassle. That's so that I know – yeah, so I know some of the, the higher-ups at Bread and Life uh, you know, have stopped buying at Trader Joe's. And uh, you know, my wife encourages me to stop buying at Trader Joe's. I haven't done enough research yet, but I mean I'm hoping this is just – that's just like some sort of like corporate like brain – whatever you want to call it on the air – and that they maybe could change their policies. But if anyone who's listening knows anyone at Trader Joe's and wants to, I don't know, comment on that or have maybe figure out a way to change their policies, because literally they, the Bread and Life people were told, eh, it's just too much of a headache for us to give all this free food that we're going to throw away to all the people who need it. That's true. That sucks, right, Jack? See, now with our in-house kind of production, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to have to call Trader Joe's and get a comment, follow up on this. Yeah, because yeah. That, that's, that's crap, right? We'll report back to you. That right. is crap. That's crap. I, uh, that, that is what we here at the Heritage Radio Network like to refer to as a load of crap. Uh, we have a caller on the line. Oh, okay. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, this I, is John Doe. Hey, how you doing? I, I was going to uh, call out one of your tweets there that you uh, – let, let me find it here. There it is. Uh, finally made fish sauce cured bacon. Freaking delicious. I saw the picture. So, uh, uh, tell us about it. So, um, basically, uh, Piper gave me the, um, base brine and, uh, I just replaced the, the salt with fish sauce and it was actually around, um, 8%. So then, um, I just boosted it a bit to get to the 12 and a half and then just added brown sugar and water, uh, to the appropriate percentages to, to get the, the brine. Then I uh, uh, left it in the fridge, uh, probably a little bit longer than I should have. So it was slightly oversalted, but I compensated by doing just like uh, a couple stages of uh, dilution and, and just water. Um, that's actually one of the questions I call I have been calling you about. But sure. Uh, so, so then uh, you know tried it for a few days to build the pellicle and then just smoked it um, for a couple hours with uh, mesquite and. It came out really awesome, um, but the funny story is um, when I had first cured it, when I had disco- when I had discovered that it was way too salty, I pretty much stunk out the whole house. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, people were pretty upset with me, but that was that was funny. It was still very good, but it was just really powerful and and um, somewhat inconsumable. But I mean, you could put it in stuff, but then 
I just did the dilution and that ended up working out. So actually my question is, um, is there some way to come up with like um, a concentration such that you take care of, you know, the botulism, all the, all the, you know, all the bad things that come along with it without having to figure out the exact time, like basically leave it in there indefinitely uh, without having to worry too much about, you know, being under or over salted. Is there some sort of cross, um, basically a crossing between optimal flavor and um, and handling all the the microbes that you don't want in there? Well, sure. I mean, you. I mean, the the things like botulism you're going to take care of with uh, nitrites. Did you add nitrites to it? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, like, and the nitrite concentrations are small enough. You know, you don't have to use. Uh, were you using what? Were you using a Prague powder or were you using like a salt with nitrites in it? I was using uh, what's uh, what's referred to as pink salt. So yeah. I think it was salt, right. salt with nitrates in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in other words, you don't need to add enough. Uh, uh, like that stuff's not going to radically increase the saltiness of your, of your product because you're not going to be adding that much relative to the quantity of what would normally be regular white salt to it, right? Okay. So the, you know, it's the pink salt that's going to take care of the the beasties that you're really worried about, like you know the uh, the ones that are that uh, will grow perhaps if you were going to cold smoke or hold it, right? So you you know right. so the, the, that's going to take care of that stuff. And you said you added extra salt to the fish sauce, right? Yeah, it was eight percent, so I brought it up to twelve and a half, which is I believe to be the uh, the, the basic uh, brine for a bacon. Yeah, well, I mean, you can do various different brine concentrations. I'd have to look up exactly kind of what the the minimums are, but you're not holding it for a long time. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so, I mean, if the nitrite levels are are high enough to inhibit things like botulism and to get a good pink cure, which I saw the picture, sucker's pink, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, that's going to take care of, of a lot of a lot of those problems. Another thing, um, you're saying that they, it was unbearable the salt or the aroma. Have you tried? Did you try pre-cooking the fish sauce a little bit to blast off some of the volatiles? Um, well, what I had done was I just yeah. So what I had done was I, I took it. You know, once it came out of the brine, I just took it out immediately to cook it just to taste how how much salt penetration was in it. So I think I had some excess. It was still pretty wet. Right. So that, that's why a lot of, you know, it, it was pretty stinky. So. No, I mean, did you, did you cook the, did you, like, boil the fish sauce a little bit before you used it as a brine? Oh, no, I didn't. I, I just did it straight. Right. That might mellow it a little bit um, in terms of how it smells after it comes out. Uh, I have never done any side by sides, but it's always been my mental perception when I that heated fish sauce tastes very different or smells very different from unheated fish sauce. But that could yeah. just be because once it fills up the kitchen and it's combining with the ingredients, that it just smells totally different once it's combined. I don't know, but you know, yeah. it's, it's always been my feeling that like something's volatilizing off of the fish sauce that kind of rounds it out and makes it. Um, less offensive to the people around who might not love fish sauce as much as we do. <laughs> yeah. That's a fair point. Yeah. I will consider that. Yeah, I mean, it might, be, it might be hard to love fish sauce as much as I do, uh, I mean, you know, and be you know, from the East Coast of America, because that stuff is just straight-up delicious. What brand of fish sauce did you use? Um, I forget what brand it was, but I, I, found, a, I found a brand that um, didn't have any of the... Uh, uh, the fake hydrogenated vegetable proteins. Yeah, uh, I, I can I can follow you. I can uh, shoot you a picture of it. I forget exactly which brand it was. I think it was the one with the baby on the front. 
Oh yeah, I forget the name of that one. I've done a. I did once, uh, like years ago, like four years ago or something. I did a side by side of a lot of the ones that were available in kind of the local markets around uh, Lower Manhattan where I live. And uh, I mean, as anyone who knows, listen to me. I've, there's a lot of Japanese fish sauce out there that I love. And there's one that's not really available here that's made with uh, ishiri, and there's a bunch of different ishiris. Uh, and, oh, nice. and one of them is called. Uh, one of them's from squid, solely from squid guts. And that sucker is amazing because it's extremely meaty. And that's the one that I think tastes as close to uh, Sally Granger, who's the um, – she's the fish – the garum, the Roman fish sauce expert. And she's done a lot of recreations of uh, recipes in large tanks as part of her PhD thesis uh, on fish oh. sauce. And she's done a lot of work with Apicius. And she and her husband did a translation slash adaptation of Apicius for, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago. That is, I think, the best one that's available in terms of – uh, historical accuracy of cooking because it starts from the it starts from the uh, the premise that uh, they actually met what they said when they were writing as opposed to some of the earlier like the Dover publication who's I forget who's the translator on that just you know kind of plays fast and loose with it assuming that we moderns know better about cooking than they did back then when it's always better to assume that someone who's writing about something is writing about it well, you know uh, <laughs> but uh, anywho so I tasted her fish sauce a number of years ago that was uh, the garum sociarum which was made from uh, mackerel guts in her case and aged for I think two or three years and that yeah. was very close to this one Japanese ashiri and the difference between it and normal fish sauce is it had much more of a kind of canned meat hammy bacony flavor than right. um, than your standard fish sauces but of the standard fish sauces I mean the ones that a lot of people like like for instance like the three crabs or whatever it is is like super doped with uh, with uh, you know isolates protein isolates um, right uh, the one that my favorite uh, is uh, Tiparos, which isn't the one with the baby on the front, but that of the commercially easy ones to get, I like that one. I believe Tiparos is out of Thailand, but I'm not sure. I never know. You know, every every everyone from uh, you know from that area of the world argues about who's got the best fish sauce. You know, but what of course, you, what are you gonna do? Uh, so yeah. That, yeah, so I wouldn't, I mean, like, we, I can look it up, but I wouldn't worry about, like, uh, it being unsafe with having just the 8% on a, on a, on a brine like that. Uh, and then, you know, then you'll get, you know, relatively more fish sauce flavor versus salt flavor, which might be good. And try, I would just do a side-by-side where you just, uh, uh, boil a small sample of fish sauce and then taste it versus the raw just side-by-side after they cool to see what happens. Okay. Um, just one more quick question on the... You know how I did that ice cream cone with the microwave cake? Yes, also on my tweet, in case you guys ever follow um, my tweets. Yep. Um, so the um, one question I had was we were trying to just uh, draw patterns on a plate or be able to build, you know, little structures to be able to put other dessert things next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if some sort of hydrocolloid or some sort of thickener that could add to it that would still allow the... The, uh, the effect of microwaving, um, but hold more structure. Is there uh, a, is, is there a lot of dairy in the cake? Um, no, it's actually just. Um, I think it ends up being half a stick of butter, four tablespoons of butter. Right. Um, it's mostly uh, it's mostly egg and then. Um, uh, egg white powder. Right. If you prehydrate methyl cellulose uh, from the either A or SG series, <clears throat> a fairly viscous one, if you prehydrate that in water to a fairly high degree, so it's kind of pasty, and then fold that into the mix, that will um, that will gelatinize after. So, so <clears throat> but you need to pre foam that, right? So you okay. you pre foam that. 
uh, and then if you have egg white or xanthan or something in there that's holding the structure um, see the, the issue with with these with these things is is that with cakes uh, there is you need to have structure beforehand right and that's what holds right. the bubbles as they grow and then you need right. to have structure uh, you need to have structure afterwards which is the starch that sets so uh, you know years and years ago I was working with uh, Johnny Azzini and one of the things we did for a, a demonstration we were working on was a no protein um, <clears throat> you know cake. Uh, like angel food cake style but without that kind of bite of egg protein and we worked it out with um, methylcellulose and we would foam with an ISI canister, EC canister into molds. We would foam uh, a cake batter mix that had as a portion of it hydrated methylcellulose. The issue – and it worked because the methylcellulose – it was already foamed. The methylcellulose would gel as it heated. It gelled. It held the structure in the same way that a protein will hold the structure in a cake. Uh, and then uh, after it was cooked, the starch took over. Problem is, is that it has bad interactions with dairy. Uh, you know, like me- methylcellulose doesn't necessarily um, <clears throat> react well or work well in uh, high dairy applications. Okay, I'll give it a go and let you know how it works out. Cool. Thanks a lot. And then we got. Right, thanks tw- so much. All right. Talk to you soon. We got a tweet. Pink salt for bacon. Yeah, you don't use pink salt for bacon. That was a question mark. That was a question mark. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, is someone like you? Look. I okay. Look, if you go to if you go to what's it called? If you you know pink salt, by the way, for those who don't know, is uh, what they do is is they mix. There's two different kinds of pink salt: ones that have uh, nitrites in them, which are the ones that we normally use, and ones that have nitrates. You only want to use nitrates for uh, long cured things like uh, country hams and whatnot, because nitrates break down uh, over time into nitrites. Uh, and so, in a short cured thing like bacon, you're only supposed to use nitrites. And uh, nitrites. I mean, look, this is all the top of my head, so it could be that, like, a huge portion of my brain was erased somehow and that, like, my data is totally wrong, which say someone please tweet and tell me. But, uh, you know, when people, like, for instance, let's say you go to Whole Foods and you buy what's called uncured bacon, they should put giant-ass quotes around, giant quotes, I mean, around that, because what happens is, is they use uh, foodstuffs like celery that are very, very high in nitrites, and then they just uh, purify, I guess remove the flavor, and, you know, greatly purify uh, concentrate the amount of nitrites you know, that are in the celery itself, right, such that that is strong enough to cure the uh, bacon. Bacon that is actually uncured looks like roast pork, right, and tastes like salted roast pork, which is not bad. Ain't bacon, you know what I mean? And I'm pretty sure that they add the pink color to the salts just so that you don't accidentally use it as salt. And I'm virtually certain, I would say 99.99% certain that uh, – and I always forget. They're called pre- uh, preg powders or insecure powders. I never remember whether it's number one or number two. I just can't remember because I, just, I, I choose not to. They, uh, they color it uh, pink. Now, if you get nitrites in the form of tender quick, Morton's tender quick, that is – NaCl, regular salt, mixed with uh, sodium nitrite in, in a dosage that's meant to be used straight, and that sucker is not pink. So if you're using uh, tender quick or what's called you know that kind of a curing salt on a bacon, then uh, which is you know it can be recommended because there's no possibility really of error with it. But uh, anyway, so someone tweet on in and tell me that you know my brain was erased because there's always a good chance. Uh, all righty, uh, should we take a break? No, keep, keep going. All right, Stas says keep going, so I'll keep going. Uh, Christian Spinello at Eat the Pig uh, tweeted in, listened uh, to a back show where you talked about octopus and was curious if there is an anesthesia step. Uh, step. Step. An- anesthesia, anesthesia step. Why is that so hard? Is that something you try it? Anesthesia step. 
Yeah, I don't know, Stas is good at that stuff because, yeah, anyway. Uh, or Ikejima stepped for them. Piper, by the way, Piper, get Piper drunk. Not difficult. Says that <laughs> says that uh, tongue twisters are like, he, he well, hates tongue twisters. He won't say it. Are the poor man's uh, pun. I but think. to me, they're unrelated. Like, yeah. Like, to, the tongue twister is unrelated to a pun. I don't, like, who the hell knows what he was talking about, right? He was in the car, so he wasn't drunk. <laughs> well. Yeah, well, well, who knows? <laughs> Love you, Piper. Uh, I'm sure he's listening, and now I'm going to have to put up with that all day. He's, he he's ne- never listens, except for today he's going to listen just so that he can hear that and then give me give me crap salt, for yeah. being the bad person that I am, right? Give you pink salt. Give you, oh. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> wow. wow. Okay. So uh, that is a very interesting uh, question, uh, Christian, and one that I can't believe that we haven't thought about before. And part of the issue is – that uh, I've never purchased a live uh, octopus at a, at a market. Have either of you guys ever had that live tiny octopus on a chopstick? It's not really – I don't really want – it's not that I wouldn't eat it if someone handed it to me. It's just not in my thing. You know what I mean? But uh, the reason why uh, it's super interesting is, is that, you know, as I said, you know, many times, cephalopods, um, you know, octopus uh, and some squid in particular, but really octopus, are kind of the geniuses of the invertebrate world. They're extremely smart, but they they're, they're very bizarre in that they, their brains don't function the same way ours do. They're not put together the same way. Now, their uh, neuron, their, you know, the neuron transmission works the same way because you know nerves had already developed by that time, and so they function in similar pathways. But their nervous system and their way of cognition, however you want to put it, right? And and I think that the you know I think we're we're all past this uh, idea that. Um, Animals are somehow just machines that can be, uh, you know, that you know have no sort of uh, inner 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 life or workings at all. I think we're you know we're kind of past that as a as a society, don't you think, Saz? Mm-hmm. I mean, very few people think that anymore. Uh, I think you know there's a bunch of hardcore uh, scientists who kind of believe that, but it's it's almost the equivalent of solipsism on an individual basis to believe that we are the only animals that have some sort of inner life. It just doesn't really make any sense. But, you know, the question is, you know, does a clam really think about a lot? Is there an inner life to a clam? I don't think so. But the closely related octopus, I mean, it can do some pretty complicated and amazing things and can learn some pretty complicated and amazing things. So I think it would be a little disingenuous to think that uh, an octopus doesn't have some sort of inner life going on, whether or not they're they're aware of their own existence or not, whether, you know, that's unclear. But uh, it is very interesting to think about what anesthesia and particular what ikijime uh, might do to them. Now, ikijime is, is, is a, you know, a set of Japanese fish killing techniques. But in the larger sense, you know, uh, we're not referring to any particular traditional or even newer Japanese killing technique when we're talking about this subject. We're talking about the um, purposeful, quick killing of an animal, and in this case fish, because ikijime means, you know, fish killing, uh, in, a, in a way that increases their quality. And typically, when you think about fish, and, and I don't want to get stuck into arguments of, you know, hey, what is the fish actually feeling? The question is, is do things that seem like less stressful ways of killing the animal, right, from just from an anthropomorphic thing, let's not even talk about being rigorous, do things that seem like they would make sense to reduce the stress of slaughter, like anesthesia, like taking the brain out right away, uh, muscle stress in the sense like destroying the spinal cord so that uh, there's no more impulses coming from the spinal cord to the muscles to uh, use up the ATP to cause rigor, which is why you want to destroy the spinal cord in some strong swimming fish like bass and tuna. 
So the question is, is things like that that make sense from a human perspective as reducing stress, do they have an effect in the taste? Now, you don't even have to think about what's going on in the inner mind of the fish because you have a much more uh, verifiable result. Things that look like they cause less stress cause the uh, animal to taste better when you eat it. So there is there is an effect. So it's like humane, whatever that means, killing techniques somehow align in this case and hopefully in as many cases as we can see, align with uh, best practices from a food preparation standpoint. Now, in an octopus, I came across a site, um, uh, what I'm looking for it here, uh, www.nichirefresh.co.jp. Uh, and they do octopus, and they say some interesting stuff. They say they're, octop- they're octopi, but they say octopuses when they, uh, when they uh, <laughs> translate it, are caught one at a time using pot traps. It's said that only strong, healthy octopuses enter the pot traps uh, while the shallow waters are still abundantly full with prey. This enables us to capture strong, firm-limbed octopuses of the highest quality. Unlike the trawling method, this harvest method does not disturb the harvesting waters, and it also prevents over-harvesting, making it much better for the environment and for resource conservation. That's really interesting, just on alone on that standpoint, because the idea that, that, you, that you want to catch a good, strong octopus, and, they, and they, those are the ones that go into pot traps, it kind of makes sense because you know, they like to hide, right? So I mean, I don't really know what an octopus pot trap looks like, but they might go in there thinking they're hiding and they get trapped, right? Whereas it's a well-known fact that as soon as a male octopus uh, donates its sperm, or whatever you want to call it, to the female octopus, that it goes, like, it's called senility, it goes insane, senescence, it goes crazy and just starts wandering around on the bottom of the ocean floor so that it can get picked apart by whatever uh, prey you want. So then you're getting kind of crappy, yeah, or, and on the flip side... As soon as the uh, female lays its eggs, it stops eating and sits in the cave like blowing water over the eggs to keep things from growing on it and guarding them against uh, you know, predators. And then as soon as the, uh, the babies hatch, she wanders out to get picked apart, eaten, and died in senescence. So, yeah, so you want a nice, good-tasting octopus that hasn't gone into senescence already. You've got to get one that still has its, its self-preservation instincts intact. Um, so, uh, Stas is looking something up she can talk about in a minute because I don't have time to look at the picture right now. Uh, but she's gonna, what do you got a picture it's of there, Stas? It's a picture of an, a Japanese octopus pot trap. Yeah. With a calm, ha- happy octopus. And it does look a lot like a cave that an octopus might go in. It makes sense. Yeah. And it literally says, calm, happy octopus. And the name of the trap is Tako Isubo. Anyway, so I thought that was really interesting. And then here's uh, the other thing uh, that they say is they say then that they pr- practice ikijime on it to kill it very quickly. Now, there's, a, there's an article uh, that's available in the September – it's available September 2013 in the Journal of Experimental Marine Biology and Ecology called The Identification and Management of Pain, Suffering, and Distress in Cephalopods, Including Anesthesia, Analgesia, uh, Analgesia, Gizia, and uh, Humane Killing, uh, and it's by Paul uh, Andrews et al., uh, and yes, yeah, so it's a fairly recent article, uh, and it's extremely uh, interesting. So they, it, it, for those of you that are interested, and it is an interesting subject, and we don't have time to go into it now, but they go over uh, all of the markers that human beings would look in a, in a supposedly non-anthropomorphic way, although it doesn't make sense to think of it really in a non-anthropomorphic way, of how you would judge whether or not something is experiencing pain to the degree that uh, that animal should be protected in a research environment. And then it goes on to figure uh, to try and figure out uh, whether or not we can prevent 
those sorts of pain. Uh, and pain, remember, is different from nociception. This is getting complicated for a radio show, but nociception is the idea that there is a, a noxious stimulus and animals uh, go away from it. So you take a cockroach and you put fire next to the cockroach. Cockroach moves away from the fire. Are they experiencing pain? I don't know. Or are they just responding to the heat uh, in the way that uh, a sensor, you know, uh, uh, a smoke detector sensor responds to smoke, right? So a response to what human would consider a noxious stimulus is nociception. Pain is a consciousness state that has to do with whether or not the animal understands that something is going on and feels some sort of distress uh, relative to that. So they go through a bunch of arguments about what that would mean, uh, and then they go into what is now the important part for us, which is, uh, well, what regulates that? So the two main uh, – two of the anesthetics that they use, one of which is clove oil, which is the one that we use when we're anesthetizing fish, and there's a lot of data on using clove oil uh, and its derivatives, eugenolized. So usual to um, to anesthetize fish, right? And I've done it many times. I've anesthetized lobsters, which are an entirely different set of you know animals, crustacean with usual. Uh, and I believe that there is an observable difference, and therefore I don't have to worry about whether or not we're actually what's going on in the mind of a lobster because I feel that they taste different if they're anesthetized beforehand and if they're killed quickly. Um, so the question is, does it work in cephalopods? Uh, answer, yes, it appears to work in cephalopods. Uh, but here's the interesting part. Magnesium chloride, which is a widely available salt, you can get it at the Duane Reed. Remember we got the magnesium chloride at the Duane Reed? Magnesium chloride added to uh, the water that um, uh, invertebrates like mollusks and clams are living in um, – causes them to lose their, uh, their, their muscle. It's a muscle relaxant, right? And so if you add the right amount of magnesium chloride uh, to the solution, and here I have the numbers, it's approximately 0.5% uh, weight magnesium chloride in volume along with 1% ethanol. It will cause their muscles to completely relax. Now, what you don't know here, right, what you can't know is whether or not that is actually shutting their brain down or whether it's just shutting down the ability of their muscles to work. But large amounts of magnesium chloride uh, stop, down, uh, stop respiration and cause the animal to die. So a humane killing technique uh, Ikejima style might be to put a small amount of clove oil along with a small amount of ethanol and magnesium chloride to slow their muscles down and to put them into a state of anesthesia, right? And then to add more magnesium chloride to stop their respiration and then, you know, do whatever, cut your brain out. The other, uh, you know, and there's the problem with octopi is that they don't have a central brain. They have a large kind of brain near the eye. So there's midline dissection where you take out the entire eye area and get rid of the brain section. But they have a bunch of other, quote unquote, brain sections, uh, unlike us, right? But that's one of the humane, the, or complete decapitation of the octopus, immediate decapitation of the octopus, another good ecogenic. Anyway, but Are the brains in other parts of the body, or it's all the head? No, I think it's like a separate. Like most of the neurons in an octopus are in their tentacle. Not most, but I, mean, I haven't done the research in a long time. But a huge amount of the of the the neurons in the octopus are in in the tentacles because, like, the, for instance. It's, it's very complicated, but the, the point is is that nobody really understands what it means to knock out the uh, consciousness of an octopus because nobody understands what octopus consciousness is. And one of the fascinating things about researching cephalopods is that their entire method of perception of the world is different than ours. So that like proprioception, like how you know where your body is in space, works entirely differently in cephalopods than it does in mammals. And so it's kind of hard to evaluate – uh, what's going on. But it's an extremely interesting subject, and anyone out there who has uh, access to live octopi, I'd be curious to run some tests on taste. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. that's the only thing I know I can test is how that sucker tastes on my – how that smart, awesome thing tastes once it gets in my mouth.
Anyway. Let's take a break. Oh, we'll take a break. Come back with cooking issues. Every August for the past 10 years, Heritage Foods USA has had the great honor of announcing the arrival of a new generation of Good Shepherd Ranch Heritage turkeys and a new chapter in the history of an endangered species. You have to eat them to save them. While many farmers now use the term, Frank Reese and his team raised the truest example of the original Heritage turkey. According to the USDA, they remain the only farm allowed to use the name Heritage on their label. We hope you reserve your healthy, naturally mating, flying, standard bronze, bourbon red, white holland, slate, black, or narragansett turkey today. Let's do it again and support the brightest hope for the turkey. We guarantee these are the best tasting turkeys ever or your money back. Prices start at $75. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. We've had some of those heritage turkeys. They were straight up delicious. I did. I think I did a bionic turkey on a heritage thing once. That was, I think, maybe the best one we ever did. We did a bionic heritage turkey. Yeah. And sucker was awesome. You know, the bionic turkey is where we rip out the skeleton, replace it with a skeleton, an aluminum tube skeleton with holes cut in it, so that we can pump heated oil through, cook it from the inside out, so that it cooks quickly, and then flash fry it afterwards to get a crispy skin, which is delicious. Should we do that again? If we tell Jack, uh, if we tell uh, rather Patrick that we're going to do some sort of fancy thing, you think he, you think he'll hook us up? Yeah. Hook us up with a heritage turkey? We'll probably make that happen. Sweet. We had a we had a question come in too about um, alternate proteins, like in the form of bugs, and if you think bugs will find their way on menus soon. Well, I mean, bugs have found their way on menus. You know, uh, already. I mean, you know, every you know in you know Mexico, you got those fried grasshoppers, which I just don't think taste good. That's the thing. I mean, they're crunchy, but a lot of things are crunchy. You know what I'm saying? You've had those, right, Stas? I don't think so. And I don't like them. And then there's the ant eggs, uh, you know, Eskimole, which I haven't had, but I think those are extremely, you know, high priced. There's witchy grubs. Uh, you know, some grubs are apparently delicious tasting. I mean, there's no, there's no reason not to eat them, you know, other than the, the gross factor um, and that they're fairly small, right? So... I don't know. I don't think there's any any reason why they shouldn't. I mean, like obviously there's a grossness factor that a lot of people have to get over. But you know, then you know who uh, is big into eating bugs is uh, Dana Goodyear. Didn't she write about that in her new eating everything eating bugs? And then the uh, what's it called the um, what's it called Natural History Museum had that big bug eating uh, thing a couple of years back. You know who else? I bet you Paul Adams from Popular Science has eaten himself a lot of bugs. But you bet you that guy's eating himself a lot of bugs. Um, we had this in on the Twitter. Uh, Dan D at Eat the Fat uh, at Cooking Issues. Trader Joe's in STL, which is St. Louis, we think, donates, right? Yeah. St. Louis. Uh, donates a lot of food to our local at campus kitchens. Maybe it's just an in store decision. Well, it's good to know that it's not Trader Joe's nationwide, and it just means, hey, New York Trader Joe's, step on up and give some food to Bread and Life. What? Yeah, but I'm sure they're probably all like run like low. Hey, Jack, you want to say something nice about the Bread and Life friends of our station? All the good work they do. Well, yeah, they they work with Heritage Foods also. We give them a lot of hams, I believe, and then come Thanksgiving we work with them as well. They've also they were one of the sponsors of the Bushwick Block Party, so they're like always around here. 
Also, you know, Anthony Butler is a great guy. I don't know did. if you met him. Yeah, no, yeah, I have. Uh, I know some, you know, my wife's done some architecture work for them, and so has, uh, you know, another couple of friends of mine. They they just happen to be really kind of good people, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, Trader Joe's, just, you know, give them the stuff that you're about to throw away. Why throw it away? Why have it go to waste? There's plenty of people, there's plenty of people here in New York that could use the food. Am I right, Jack? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, here's a question out to you guys. Tom Fisher, you asked us about the eggnog. Did it work? Did it thicken? It's been like a week or two, right, since we answered that question. The eggnog should be thick now. Let us know. Tweet on in. We need to do our own eggnog soon. Oh, dang, yeah. Well, before Thanksgiving, we have to set our eggnog. Piper's going to do something crazy with it, though, right? He can't help it. No, let's do it correctly. So you and I are going to yeah, do it? Do we it. won't tell him until afterwards? Or you can right. do his own. You can do it side by side. You look oh, side jeez. He does love the side-by-side. Side. Uh, another follow-up. Drew, uh, Drew Bushorn wrote in on Tempe. He had tweeted in and asked us about whether or not you could use microbial transglutaminase, which, by the way, transglutaminase is what we call meat glue, and it's the enzyme that bonds proteins together. It binds a um, glutamine residue, to, which is an amino acid, to a lysine residue uh, in a COVID. Res- it's such a gross word. Why would I say residue when I'm talking about food? Residue. Glycine, uh, I mean, uh, uh, lysine residue. Anyway, uh, the so anyway, so it bonds these things together, and uh, it comes from microbes. It's called microbial transglutaminase, and it usually has uh, various helper proteins. The question is, could you glue tempeh together with it? And apparently, the answer, and you can see it because he responded uh, uh, to the Twitter, is, yes, it does. Uh, it glues it together, and he he says, um, uh, what did he say here? Thanks for putting together a good program. Long live the hammer. Fan of the hammer. There's got to be one fan of the hammer. Oh, I have a couple. I know I you know do. Oh, come on, please. Everyone, everyone loves the hammer. Come on, please. Uh, a, a, few ba- a few days back, I tweeted Dave about using his favorite enzyme, uh, transglutaminase, to make steamed tempeh solid enough to char uh, to char burger style. Since I know he's not a big veggie, but he might be amused by the results, I thought I'd report back. The upper half, uh, he shows the part that's not uh, TG, and it's just all broken apart. And the bottom, Patty, with a 1% by mass transglutaminase, which is a good number for something like that. Uh, it tasted pretty uh, – it worked well and tasted pretty good with lettuce and mayo. Well, everything tastes good with lettuce and mayo, right? I mean, lettuce and mayo taste good. Man, add a good tomato, and you got let, you got all, you're almost all the way to a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Yeah. And in fact, even if you're a vegetarian, I hate to say this because bacon, lettuce, bacon, lettuce, tomato. And we're talking with Mark Ladner about this over the weekend because we did a, an event at uh, at the Discovery Center at the uh, Thanksgiving Farm, which we could talk about later. Center for Discovery. Center for Discovery, yeah. Uh, Discovery Center or something else. That's like a science museum or something. Center for Discovery. Yeah, you know me. Anyway, so the point is, is that like that's kind of one of the great sandwiches. Mark thinks that the reason it's such a great sandwich is you can have it at any time of day. And it's, but and I'm get, like I'm going to get a lot of flack about this, but it's. Not as good a sandwich, but almost a good, as good a sandwich as just with just to toasted, crappy white bread, mayo, an excellent tomato and lettuce. Yeah, I mean, right? An Subbing bacon for the mayo? Is that what you saying? No. no, you need mayo no matter oh, okay. what, Jack. Don't try okay. to make a BLT Excuse without me, mayo. <laughs> Do you eat BLTs without mayo, Jack? No. Is this a problem we're gonna have? No, no, no. All right, all right. Um, I was about to, I was about, <laughs> I was about to go. Up. You, you can feel me spooling into. Yeah. The headphones, like, you know, like the gloves come off in the hockey, boom, on the ice. Anyway, uh, okay, uh, so that was it. Uh, just a good follow-up, thanks. And we like to hear uh, follow-ups like that, right? We enjoy that stuff. Um, 
Okay, we had a question in last week, but we forget who it came in from, right? I think it was a caller was asking a caller. about gluten-free ramen. Uh, and they specifically, they wanted to know whether or not uh, you could add consue, which is the uh, kind of alkaline salts that are used to firm up uh, alkaline noodles, uh, of which ramen is one of those. So you add uh, to flour, you add uh, consue. It raises the pH, makes it more alkaline. And raising the pH strengthens the gluten in it and causes the noodles to have more bite, more snap, more, more elasticity, makes them firmer, right? Which is one of the reasons why uh, people do alkaline noodles. The other one is there's a specific alkaline taste that you like if you're accustomed to that. Um, and we're accustomed to that uh, in certain things. It's a slightly different alkaline taste, but for instance, in pretzels have an alkaline taste to them because they're boiled in alkaline water before they're um, – or dipped in alkaline uh, bath before they're baked, which is why they have that awesome color and that specific pretzel taste. Um, Back to this. So the other thing uh, that the alkaline stuff does in uh, in wheat flour is it turns it yellow, which is why you have those kind of bright yellow alkaline noodles, right? Now, with ramen, uh, I think most of the time ramen is made in an alkaline noodle semi-alkaline noodle process, not a high, high uh, level of alkaline noodles from the data that I could get from, you know, the, the internets on the actual industrial production of ramen. So – but the, the classic ramen production is you make the noodle probably with alkaline. Uh, with uh, out of wheat flour, sometimes with the addition of potato starch or other very fast hydrating starches to allow the rehydration to take uh, place much faster in the cup when you add the boiling you know water to it when you're making the ramen. I, you know, I haven't made ramen in so many years from the from the from the bags. Have you ever? When was the last time you had one of those things? Three years ago. Yeah, but, uh, oh no, you mean like that? Yeah, like like you know, like the one that you actually buy the pa- package, you break it open with the little flavor pack. Oh yeah, no. twenty yeah. years. Twenty. Dang. I used to eat the hell out of those. Those are good and cheap. Anyway, so uh, what happens is you uh, make the noodles. They are steam. Oh, this is kind of cool. They have a conveyor belt, and the conveyor belt runs at two different speeds, right? So it, the, a faster-running conveyor belt loads onto a slower-running conveyor belt, and that's how they get the wave in it. Oh. Yeah, by, by a differential conveyor belt. It's fed onto, and then they get the wave in it. When it's on, after it goes on the slower conveyor belt that causes the wave... It goes through a steam tunnel. The steam tunnel cooks the starch out, right? It then goes uh, – it's then cut, sometimes folded. It, well, then they put it on another conveyor belt that stretches it out a little bit to separate the noodles after they've done that. This is all pretty cool, right? And then uh, that's after the steam thing. And then it goes – it gets cut and sometimes folded into the full block if you're going to put it into a block form for like in packaging and plastic. Then goes into a fryer. It fries to dehydrate it. It's a fast dehydration step. It also, as opposed to regular dehydration, opens the pores in the noodles because it's boiling the water out. And that's why ramen uh, rehydrates so quickly because it's got all these open pore structures um, from the frying. And that's also why you can eat ramen without cooking it. And it's got kind of a good crunchy texture because it's slightly, it's slightly, it's more porous than dried pasta. That's why it tastes better raw raw-ish uh, than uh, pasta. It's then further dehydrated a little more and packaged. That, that's how the ramen works. So then uh, the question is, uh, so clearly adding consue to uh, gluten-free uh, um, ramen isn't going to add the functional benefits of texture that you would get in, um, in wheat flour. However, there is a, a new article out. I think it's brand new. I think it's like not even out until 2014. I think it's one of those ones that's in pre-press right now uh, in the uh, journal Food Chemistry called Quality Improvement of Rice Noodle Restructured with Rice Protein Isolate and Transglutaminase by Yang Kim et al. And it's specifically looking at increasing the toothiness of rice noodles using transglutaminase. Uh, and they talk specifically, I think, about uh, ramen and how ramen might work. Okay. 
Um, and so it, what's interesting, if you look this uh, paper up, is they have photos of uh, scanning electron uh, microscopy photos of uh, what you know just plain rice looks like as a noodle. And like everyone knows who's ever just made a rice noodle, it's like a bunch of BBs. It doesn't hold together well. There's no structure. There's no protein network uh, like there would be in something that has gluten, which is why when you're making uh, gluten-free things with rice, what you do is you cook off some of the rice first and then, f- uh, and then add that cooked rice back to your raw rice flour because otherwise it has no structure, right? So they have that. Then they have that just with transglutaminase added, and it doesn't join, do that much joining back together because uh, rice is fairly low in proteins that can be bond, bound together by transglutaminase. What they did, and then they said that, look, one way to get around this is to add soy proteins and all these other things, but these guys did a study where they added rice protein back to it and transglutaminase, and you can see it, and the one on the, the one that it has the added rice protein added back to it, as well as transglutaminase added to bind it together, looks a lot more like a traditional dough structure than that. So maybe that's a way to increase in a gluten-free application the twosomeness of, uh, of it. And you could probably also, if you can't get rice protein, you could probably do a little bit of cooked rice, soy protein, unless you're against it, that's hydrated along with the rice with transglutaminase and get more of a firm uh, kind of snappy texture out of it. But go take a look at that uh, article. Uh, because you know it seems fairly interesting. The one, the issue, only issue I have is that uh, you know, as as I've said, there were arguments, and I haven't had the time to do the research to really suss it out about whether or not adding transglutaminase to things that contain uh, trace amounts of gluten, whether it makes that, uh, whether it makes the gluten fraction more reactive or less reactive uh, for people who suffer from celiac. Uh, and I've heard kind of arguments on both sides. However, I will say that this article is specifically addressing the issue of uh, celiac. And so you know, they're, they're looking to make a gluten-free, rice-only uh, product that has good eating qualities, and they are interested in the ramen issue. So it's uh, something to look at, and you know, it's current right now. That's two transglutaminase questions. I'm going to send it to Mark. Yeah? All right, cool. Oh, yeah, right. Um, next, we have in from uh, – you think it's pronounced Philippe? I think so, Philippe. Philippe Lament. It's kind of awesome to have a last name, Lament. I think it's a good name altogether. Philippe Lament. I bet you like. I bet you like super happy though. If you have a if you have a name like Lament, you you can't you can't like you can't be melancholy. No. You know what I mean? Because you know. Well, at least if it was Piper, he's like, I'm not living up to my name. I won't. I won't. Anyway. Uh, hello, Nastasha, Dave, Jack, and Joe. It's Philippe Lament writing. Love your show. I have a question about soft serve ice cream. Some of my good friends acquired a soft serve machine amazingly, and I told them I'd be glad to make a ton of ice cream base for them for a party. Now, I know how to make ice cream that is churned regularly, but soft serve is different. Moreover, run, right? What do I do to make a baller soft serve base? Okay, this is a great question. Um, here's the deal. So I once uh, was the uh, proud owner of a soft serve ice cream machine. Also, kind of strangely, I was walking down the street one day. This is you know, uh, I don't know, 15, 12, 15 years ago. I was walking down the street uh, in uh, the garment district where I used to live, and just literally, someone had thrown out on the side of the street a giant, like uh, you know, two flavors and a twist Taylor soft serve ice cream machine on wheels. 
And I was like, look, someone threw out an ice cream machine. And my wife's like, so what? I'm like, so what? It's coming back to our house. And it weighs like, because, you know, yeah, whatever. So but the sucker weighs 900 pounds. And it's on these crappy little casters. I, look, I know it weighs 900 pounds because I looked up the cut sheet later on the sucker. And so anyway, it was on this, you know those crappy little casters that machines are on that aren't really meant to? And if you've, if you've been to the garment district, the, the only roads that are worse are the ones in lower Manhattan down where we are now. But like the garment district has these like all bent, all the roads are messed up from heavy trucks years just rolling over them all the time right so i'm rolling this thing back a couple blocks of my uh you know my loft where i lived at the time and we roll it in and you know i spend the next day and a half blowing all the roaches out of it and like you know completely nuking it such that there was nothing left alive in it you know making sure that i wasn't bringing a family of rats with me or anything like this disassembled the machine put it back together unfortunately the uh unfortunately the one of the compressors was shot in fact Two of the compressors were shot. So instead of two flavors and a twist, I had kind of one flavor where the cylinder compressor worked. And the actual refrigeration compressor uh, uh, thing that keeps the base going didn't work at all. So I had to, like, pack that with ice uh, to get it to work. And this was the first time I'd ever made a huge quantity of ice cream base. Uh, and so what I'll say is this. When you're making – and this applies to anything. If you have low temperature, you're going to want to go ahead and because you're going to make gallons. If you have a nice soft serve ice cream machine, like uh, I remember I was like, crap, I can't even fire this sucker up reasonably unless I'm making like four gallons. So I tried to make a four-gallon or five-gallon batch of ice cream base in my turkey frying pot, right? Now, if you've never done this before, it is very difficult to get an even temp – and stupidly because I'm a jerk, I tried to make uh, – I tried to make the whole batch at once just by whisking really hard, and the bottom of it, obviously, I got a little overheated. I didn't move it fast, and so all of a sudden, I see bloop. I see all of these. I see the, the coagulated, overcooked egg float to the top. I'm like, no. So I tried filtering it out, right? Also, if you've met me, you know that I was very late and like I needed the ice cream on the table, right? Because I had it was family dinner. I needed to have the stuff out. You know, Stas is shaking her head because she knows how I am. So I was like, oh no, I didn't have the time to cool it down just by putting it in the in the case. So first of all, I filtered it out. Sucker tastes like scrambled eggs. This is way prior to Heston Blumenthal making scrambled egg ice cream famous. I could have been like, well, I'm just doing Heston Blumenthal's recipe. I'm just I'm just trying out this. Yeah, but what do you mean? I meant to do this. This is what Heston does all the time. You know, it, listen, if you're not looking for scrambled egg ice cream, scrambled egg, egg ice cream, no good. And I haven't had Heston's. I'm sure it's delicious. I don't want to talk about that. So anyway, I needed to cool this base down super quick, right, that I had made and I had messed up part of it by curdling part of it. It was at the last minute too. It's always at the last minute that you ruin the base, which is why it's so horrible. I thankfully hadn't burnt it because that would be the real joker move, whatever. So it's all strained out, and I have it in the in a bus tub because I had lost the original thing in the bottom of the soft serve machine, and I threw dry ice into it to try and cool it down faster, and of course it tasted lightly carbonated when it came out of the soft serve because the soft serve hadn't frozen out all the water in it. And so I had this kind of carbonated scrambled egg ice cream. It was the worst ice cream I've ever made in my entire life. I then threw an ice cream uh, party afterwards and quite smartly at the time, although it's a cop-out and we'll talk about ways not to cop-out, uh, I drove up to the Bronx to the Mr. Softy uh, warehouse where the actual trucks for Mr. Softy go, and I said, "Look, it. I'm not. Look, I'm not trying to horn in on Mr. Softy's business. I have this ice cream machine. My wife's going to make me throw it away in about a week and a half. I'm going to have a big party. I'll pay whatever you want. Just let me buy like five gallons of Mr. Softy mix." And they did. They let me buy. It wasn't that much. I mean, the guy I was not used to it to like a normal non Mr. Softy guy showing up at the window where the Mr. Softy trucks show up to buy their stuff and like kind of making this plea. 
and I, and I guess he obviously looked at me and was like, this person does, is not a professional person in any sort of way. And so he sold me the stuff. Party was insane. Party was nuts. We went through so much soft serve ice cream on that. But that said, um, I'm sure you want to make it the right way. The first thing to do if you've never made huge batches before is make them in smaller batches so that you don't do the stupid stuff that I did. Uh, second, if you have an immersion circulator, I would just make it an immersion circulator in um, kind of two, liter, two liters at a time and just build it up two, three to four liters at a time in bags and build up that way because you're much less likely to uh, have a problem. It will take you a little bit longer, but it's easier to chill and easier to keep, um, keep done. That said, if you want to know about uh, the actual formulation of soft serve, the problem overrun in a soft serve ice cream machine isn't achieved the same way that you achieve overrun in regular ice cream with the, with the churning thing. The way that so- soft serve literally in injects air into the freezing cylinder at the same time that it injects the mixture in. So you change the overrun uh, based on the orifice. If you look in the soft serve machine, uh, there is a pump. The pump uh, draws the base out of the, of the, at least the one I had, out of the bottom of the unit and injects it into the chamber through what, what looks like you know a, a, MIG, a MIG welding tip, a little orifice, and you change that orifice size to change the overrun. And so unscrupulous people who are making soft serve, what they'll do is they'll put an orifice in there that increases the overrun to like 100% or more so that you're getting more than, you know, as more air than you are ice cream based in the finished product. Uh, you know, conversely, you can do a, like a super premium one by reducing the overrun by changing the orifice in it, which is what companies like Carvel do. So Carvel, you know, used to, and you know, it's not super premium anymore by you know modern standards, but you know, back in the '70s, they had a very low overrun ice cream that was still soft serve. That's why Carvel cakes, once they're hardened, are dense as hell because it's actually a very dense ice cream, which is why I like Carvel. Uh, and I, you know, whatever their flavoring is, I got you know, I learned to love it when I was a kid, so I have no idea whether it's actually good or not. Um, um, right, mm-hmm. you, but you didn't grow up with Carvel. Do you no, like no, it? It's okay. Yeah. yeah, but you didn't grow up with it, so it's yeah. I mean, it's like it's like black and white cookies. If you didn't grow up with a black and white cookie, you don't love a black and white cookie. Jack, you grew up with black and white. So we had this conversation last week. Yeah, yeah, black and white. Of course. White. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, so the point is the overrun is controlled by the uh, the overrun is controlled by the orifice. So you can go buy a new orifice, and they're fairly inexpensive. So whatever make you have, you can easily go buy the orifice to produce the overrun you want. The trick with uh, soft serve machines. Is is that you have to adjust? Um, you have to remember that they're going to be served warmer than a slightly warmer than a, a hard ice cream. So sugar levels need to be a little bit different. And what you need to guard against is over whipping because this thing sits there churning the entire time, even when you're not drawing. Uh, at least I believe that they always churn even when they're not drawing. So there's the issue that something might be in the cylinder much longer than it would be in a normal machine, and so you need to add uh, emulsifiers to it to prevent over whipping in the cylinder as it goes. Uh, now, a good place to go for this kind of information, if you just Google uh, soft serve Guelph, G-U-E-L-P-H, which is where the university is that does a lot of the good dairy science stuff that's available on the web, and Goff, G-O-F-F, which is the professor's name, there's a huge PDF that you can look at on the uh, on the internets that deals very specifically with all of the different um, – all the different things that go into soft serve, including um, the fact that you want a higher uh, milk fat, uh, milk fats, um, you know, uh, mil- uh, sorry, non-milk fat solids, milk fats non-solid. That's what it is in uh, in ice cream um, because you're not going to have lactose crystallization problems over time, and it increases the body of it. They talk about the fat content, uh, and they actually give some proportions uh, that you might want to use. And then you're going to go out and get some good emulsifiers. I mean, I'm sure egg yolks are good enough to emulsify them to prevent the overturning. Uh, and they talk about fat content. 
contents and everything. So just go on to that. And they actually talk about um, uh, changing the wetness or dryness perception of the ice cream based on whether you add certain salts. And this is something I never thought about before that I'm going to do more research for the next time we do ice cream work, uh, adding sodium citrate uh, or different calcium to either make it wetter or drier, the ice cream. I had no idea, so that's something to look into. you got to love Guelph. you got to love Guelph. Uh, all right, so that's it. And uh, shout out to John Riper who says, uh, Stas, sorry to hear the apples didn't arrive in the best of shape, but glad you could still go to uh, tasting with them. Hey, and, John, the chocolates were delicious. He sent us chocolates. Uh, well, let's see. And, and, I, you know, look, I think, and then I was told that I was throwing John under the bus saying that, you know, that they didn't, it's not that they didn't come in the best of sh- shape. I see you, know, you want to know exactly what our tasting stuff is. And I, I, for one, really appreciated it. And I thank you, John. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.